touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host extraordinaire, Jonathan Strickland, and with me in the studio today is, you know him, you love him, Scott Benjamin. You love Stuff. Oh, they do. Oh, really? I get notes. Huh. People love when you're on the show. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. People, <laughs> what, that my, that my listeners can read and write? Yeah. No, 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 no. I wasn't saying that. Oh, okay. It was just, uh, you, you never know these things. That's know? true. That's true. Yeah. You, you, you come on as a guest onto my show, and you are not privy to the communiques that come into the tech stuff world, I should let you know more frequently that people do enjoy when you're on. Well, that's nice. I appreciate it. And I, I have a great time when I'm here, so I'm, I'm glad to be back. And this is a topic that I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited about talking about today. Yeah, I picked something that was outside of uh, our, our, our respective wheelhouses a little bit. Mm-hmm. Aircraft carriers and super carriers. And this this was something that came about because... Uh, many ages ago, when I was first making up the topic list of potential topics for tech stuff, one of the news items at the time was about the next generation of supercarriers here in the United States, the Ford-class aircraft carrier. Yeah. So we're going to be talking a lot about uh, the current state-of-the-art, which is the Nimitz-class uh, aircraft carrier. We'll talk about the next generation. We'll talk about previous generations. But to start it all off, I wanted... To explain how amazing, how old this this idea is, it actually predates controlled flight. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I, I don't know a whole lot about this because we did, we were digging into aircraft carriers. Yeah. And just kind of as a side note of some, some article that I was reading, mm-hmm. it had mentioned that in the late 19th century, they were using ships to launch manned Balloons, right, uh, for reconnaissance uh, uh, missions and things like that. Exactly, so it was always it was always about reconnaissance. It was yeah. always about um, monitoring the enemy, right? Because in the 19th century, the navies around the world were relying heavily upon battleship class dreadnoughts, these enormous ships with heavy weaponry on them that would batter one another. That was how naval battles were decided back in the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries. And so much so that any idea, like any thought of using air support was mainly just to get a look around and see where the enemy was. Mm-hmm. Like that was the only purpose, right? They were not thought of as this would be a, we're going to weaponize balloons. It was more like we need eyes in the sky so that we know where the enemy might be. Well, even during the American Civil War, they used balloons. Uh, they would, they would float a balloon from their camp. Yeah. Uh, to check out what the enemy was doing, you know, on the other side of the hill. Yeah. And then bring it back down. But the, the intent was never to uh, to fire from up there or anything. It was just to keep an eye on the on the enemy. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the same thing is true with the earliest days of aircraft carriers in the in the respect, in the way we think of them. Now, what surprised me was that it did not take long at all from the moment that we have controlled flight. That is a heavier than air aircraft that can fly through the control of a human being and the first attempts at making an aircraft carrier. So I know that there is some disagreement about who was truly responsible for the first heavier than air aircraft. We're going to go with the Wright brothers for this one. And uh, they flew at Kitty Hawk in 1903. 1903. It took less than a decade before the United States military started saying, maybe we can launch one of these suckers from a boat. 
Yeah, not a bad idea, huh? Yeah. And, I mean, that's that's always the kind of the way it goes, right? With the, right. With the military, they're thinking, they're thinking, well, you know what? This could be a devastating machine of war. Exactly. How could we, how could we make this work for us? Right. And that's, that's exactly what they did. They said, well, you know, let's... Uh, Let's try to figure out a way to make, well, they need a nice big, uh, takeoff and landing area. Right. But, well, there's no way really to do that on a boat unless we build something that's maybe made out of wood that's a huge flat deck. Let's try yeah. that. Yeah. And they did, and it worked. Yeah, it was, it's, it was crazy. They, they built a, they built a temporary wooden deck, uh, on top of the USS Birmingham in 1910. This was truly just an experiment, right? It was mm-hmm. just a, a proof of concept. And they found a brave man, or some might say lunatic, yeah. to attempt to fly a, a tiny biplane, a Curtis biplane. Yeah, 50 horsepower. 50 horsepower. A 50 horsepower biplane. Can you imagine you're rolling down this wooden, this wooden platform that's built on top of a battleship? It's, the battleship was not meant to do this, right? It yeah. was, they had to shore up all this area to create a, a, a wooden structure for you to roll across, not necessarily knowing if you would be able to reach the right speed to be able to take off, or if you would just plunge off the end and into the ocean. Yeah, yeah, this is a, this is a scary prospect. I mean, for this guy. I mean, his name was uh, he was actually a civilian pilot. His name was Eugene Burton Eli. Yep. And uh, he. <laughs> this is so strange the way this is written, and I'll I'll read it the way it's written, and then I'll explain because it sounds so weird. Right. It says on November 14th, 1910, a 24-year-old civilian civilian pilot, again, Eugene, took off in a 50-horsepower Curtis plane from the bow of the Birmingham, which is a, you know, wooden platform cruiser again, and later landed a Curtis Model D on Pennsylvania in on January 18th of 1911. So right. it, those of you that were listening well, will realize that it wasn't a two-month flight, and he didn't change planes in midair. Right. They just hadn't figured out the landing bit of this yet. Yeah, yeah. So, so this happens like two months apart or three yeah. months apart, maybe. So, yeah, what happened was they did the first one, uh, uh, and then the second the second attempt, the second test, took place in San Francisco Bay. That's where the Pennsylvania was anchored. And uh, he took off from a, uh, from, from a landing strip on, on land, mm-hmm. took off, Flew out to the ship, landed on it, stayed for an hour, took off from the ship, and landed back on the mainland. Interesting. So that's actually the first time that both both of those things happened at one time. The, right. The initial, uh, you know, the initial takeoff, I guess, was was just a one time deal, and they just wanted to see if they could do it. They right. didn't even really consider landing at this point. I'm sure they were thinking about it, mm-hmm. but they weren't really willing to risk it yet. They needed a couple more months to to develop a, a way to do it, or maybe to look into the uh, the stats of how long it took a Curtis uh, Model D to uh, to stop to actually come to a stop, yeah. right? Because yeah, if it's longer than the boat is, you got yourself a problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as it turns out, we would come up with ways to address that problem. Now, here's the interesting thing to me: the U.S. military was very quick to test out this idea. But they were not quick to implement it. Uh, the Navy at the time was largely of the United States Navy, I should say, was largely of the opinion that this was still the domain of the big battleships. Mm-hmm. And uh, soon the cruisers would follow. Cruisers would be slightly smaller, slightly more maneuverable, faster ships than battleships. And we're talking about World War One era. Yeah. Ships. Yeah. Pre-World War One into World War One. The United States was not terribly concerned with adding air power to that. Uh, however, the British were definitely interested, and they began to innovate in this space early, early on. 
they began to experiment with Navy ships. First, they were using uh, essentially a, a, a version of, of water landing planes, like seaplanes. Mm-hmm. But they were those are very slow. They're, once they landing and, and taking off is slow, it, and getting them aboard a ship required the use of cranes. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it was not a good process if you were under the possibility of being under fire from an enemy. Yeah, you, you know, have so, to act quick. Exactly. So they started looking into other uh, possibilities, and it was the British Navy in 1918 that commissioned the first true practical aircraft carrier. It was the HMS Argus. Interesting. And so the Argus is our first practical aircraft carrier. It had a large flat deck, which became standard for all aircraft carriers following ever since. Um, and that allowed for the landing and taking off of aircraft. It was also the first that had an electrically powered elevator to move aircraft from the hangar deck to the flight deck. Very smart. And that's something we still see today. Yes. And that means that you can actually carry m- a lot more vehicles. Plus, you don't have to worry. Like if, if really bad weather's coming in, you can house them in the hangar deck as to, as opposed to having them have to secure them to the flight deck, mm-hmm. um, which could be pretty dangerous to put, you know, these are huge vehicles. So that lays the groundwork for the beginning of aircraft, uh, uh aircraft carrier history. But we're going to skip ahead to how they work today. And then later on, I'll tell you more about the various classes of aircraft carriers that the United States specifically has used over the history of the Navy. Can I can I maybe just say one thing here? And sure. Maybe I'm jumping too far ahead no, here, but no. but during World War One, the, the, their use was extremely limited. They, yeah. they they really didn't even put any kind of emphasis on it at all. It really wasn't part of World War One strategy in any way. Yeah. But during World War Two. They played a critical role. Instrumental. Yeah. Yeah. E- extremely critical because, and this is, this, I found this interesting. There was a, a side note about one of the battles mm-hmm. um, that was fought during World War II. And it said that the Battle of the Coral Sea yes. became the first sea battle in history in which neither opposing fleet saw the other one. Right. That is so interesting. I mean, imagine this. There's a, there's a, a sea battle happening where you don't see the other ship. Right. Because the battle's being fought by the planes in the air that they're launching towards each other. I mean, it's, it's such a, a strange thought that before that, that it never happened. Exactly. You had, you had planes that were dropping bombs. They were dropping torpedoes. So the planes were the weapons, right? Mm, yes. Instead of, instead of ships, uh, firing guns at one another, they're essentially launching planes at one another. And, and they're is, so far apart, they cannot see each other. And this is so interesting because, I mean, if you think about it, you, and it, again, you have to put yourself in the, the mind frame, you know, that they were back in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. This is brand new because if you wanted to get a plane over a, a sea battle, first, you probably wouldn't know where it's happening. And right. You wouldn't be able to communicate that and get that coordinated in time before something has already happened. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that the range was just too great for them because fighter planes are often you know, weighted down with lots of uh, lots of artillery. Sure. And uh, they don't have great range. They, they have a, a shorter range than... Uh, plane that's designed to fly long distances that don't carry a bunch of, uh, you know, extra weapons, bombs, sure. you know, guns, whatever. Um, so this is a, this is a brand new idea that like, we're going to take the planes to the battle and, and, you know, launch them from there instead of having to kind of, uh, you know, keep them far, far away and then maybe they'll make it, maybe they right. won't if they decide that they can't, you know, hold out long enough to get there and they'll have to turn back. It's just, it was a, a completely different way of thinking and, and, and it's just such a, a fascinating time in history. When you look back at some of the, the side notes of mm-hmm. all these battles and, and the way that they were fought, it's just completely different from World War One. Completely different. Well, really, what what had happened was uh, even during the World War One era, 
the Navy, navies around the world looked at aircraft carriers again as a means of carrying reconnaissance vehicles. Mm-hmm. Planes were not terribly useful in warfare yet at that point. They were very useful for finding out where the enemy fleets were so that you could direct your fleets and do the most damage possible. And what what really changed was that, uh, you know, you would think of like an aircraft carrier was an escort to a battleship and the battleships were your your big boys. Those were the ones that actually did the damage until the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Now, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, the ships that were uh, that were docked at Pearl Harbor were battleships, but the aircraft carriers were out on maneuvers. Mm-hmm. So the Japanese attack affected the battleships, but not the aircraft carriers, which meant that the United States was forced to reevaluate their their strategies. And they were forced to use aircraft carriers as weapons as opposed to a means of just reconnaissance. And that's what led to these things like the Battle of the Coral Sea where we end up getting this effect of uh, of of aircraft carriers being used effectively as weapons of war. Well, also, and I think this goes without saying that uh, the Japanese fleet was launched from an aircraft carrier yes. as well. So the, the 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 squadrons that attacked Pearl Harbor came from an aircraft carrier, right? That was what uh, several miles off, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, stealthily moved in and uh, and and then was able to retreat back to the homeland. Right. It was incredibly effective. It was a devastating attack, as we all know. Yeah. And so this was really what ended up changing the the way wars were fought uh, for for several decades. And so it was it was something that that proved the aircraft carrier's importance as uh, a, a vehicle in in an arsenal. Right. As you just mentioned, you know, the uh, you know, it was that the aircraft carrier was the support vehicle or the uh, yeah, the the add on vehicle. Yeah. The, the um the chaperone, I guess, that sure. would go along, right? Yeah, and yeah. then the roles reversed. I exactly. mean, it, then it became that, you know, the destroyers and the, uh, the cruisers and all those were, were, um, tagging along with the aircraft carrier because that was the big guns. Right. Yeah. You had those there to protect the aircraft carrier because the aircraft carrier had all the really valuable aircraft on it that could do devastating damage, uh, very, very quickly. So it was interesting to see such a dramatic shift. And it was, it was a dramatic shift that, by the way, did not happen smoothly. It took the the work of lots of people in the Navy to convince other branches of the military that this, in fact, was the best way of going forward. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit about some of the um, interesting battles in the United States that had nothing to do with using weapons or fighting an enemy. It was really the battles being fought between different branches of the military, mm-hmm. particularly the Air Force and the Navy. There's a There's a story... Uh, about the aircraft carrier that wasn't. It was one that was almost, but then wasn't. Uh, but yes. let's talk a little bit about how these massive, and I really do mean massive machines work. Yeah, now you have seen one in person. I have. I, I've been, been aboard the one. Midway. Okay, I've seen one in person. I've never been on one. Uh, yeah, it's, you got to pack uh, a lunch if you're going to walk from one side to the other. They uh, yeah. are big. They are huge. I mean, we're talking like, um, I'm just going to ballpark these numbers. Okay? Sure. We're talking like, more than a thousand feet long. Yep. The deck is measured in acres, something like yeah. four or four five acres, acres four yeah. and a half acres. Um, they are like uh, it's like taking a building. I think I, I read somewhere that it was like imagine the uh, oh, which building is it? In New York, the Chrysler Building yep. in New York. Tilt the uh, the Chrysler Building on its side, put mm-hmm. it in water, yeah, and that's the length of the build of the uh, of the ship, right? But then it, even greater than that, it's like it's twenty stories tall, yeah, when it's floating, yeah. 
Yeah, it's got it's it, you know if you go from the the keel of the ship, the keel is the backbone of mm-hmm. the ship, the part that's uh, at at the very bottom center, all the way to the very top. You're talking like tw- the equivalent of 24 stories. Amazing. I mean, it's it's a, a, a huge, huge machine with yeah. thousands of parts to yeah. it. Thousand, well, a billion, a billion parts or something like yeah. that is what I read somewhere. I don't know if that's true or not, but I mean, they, they literally said it's a billion parts on on these ships, and it's it's truly like running a city. Yes, because there are thousands of crew members. We'll talk about numbers when we get to it here, but yeah, there are thousands of people on board, and they have to do everything you know from collecting the garbage to um, making sure that you know people are fed, right? And of course. Fighting a war, maybe, sure, sure. potentially, uh, running just, you know, doing regular missions, I guess, you know, if they're, they're just, uh, stationed off the coast of, you know, whatever country, mm-hmm. they just have to make sure that everything is operating smoothly. Yep. Um, there's, there's just every concern that you would have with a, with a small city mm-hmm. is happening on that ship and there has to be somebody to take care of it. A small city that relies on nuclear power. Ah, because yes. that makes it even more complicated. So yes. all modern supercarriers use nuclear power to generate steam. Yeah. Um uh, the the ones that we talk about today have two nuclear power plants on them uh that are uh th- that's actually different from previous ones. Uh, earlier supercarriers had more nuclear power plants, not fewer, but more because they had a bunch of smaller ones. But Listen, there was there were as many as 8. Yes. With like four different shafts that steam would go through to turn propellers. Incredible. So you you generate steam. I mean Really, if you talk about old aircraft carriers, you're still talking steam. But in those days, you're talking about a boiler that's being uh, that's being uh, uh, heated through using fossil fuels. Sure. Uh, today, we're talking about using nuclear power to heat up water to turn it to steam. It turns ste- steam turbines, which do two things, two main things. It uh, generates the energy ne- needed to turn the massive propellers. We're talking like more than 20 feet in diameter, mm-hmm. right? These are huge propellers that that. Uh, that propel the ship through the water, and they are used to generate electricity yeah. aboard the ship. I've got a little bit more info on that, if you'd like. Sure. Uh, we can talk about it. But, yeah, let's do you know, it. I just want to just kind of throw some stuff in here, and you're going to hear a bunch of note shuffling, because i got notes everywhere. Yeah, and but, I do, too, actually. Um, this is a first for me, because usually I have my computer in here, but I actually am using this stuff called paper. You're going low-tech like Yeah, me. it's kind of crazy. <laughs> I do it all the time. Low-tech, low-tech. All right, so um, the U.S. Enterprise, USS Enterprise, oh, yes. was, uh, which was built in 1958, well, actually built between 1958 and 1961. This is a big ship. Now, this is an Enterprise class ship because there was a previous ship that was also known as the USS Enterprise. And by the way, neither of these were the ones that carried Kirk and Spock. Uh, good, good point. I'm glad. I'm really glad you pointed that out. Yeah. <laughs> Although I think they did visit it in Star Trek for the Voyage Home. <laughs> maybe, maybe they, they went because they said, Captain, we found the vessel and it's the Enterprise. <laughs> anyway. Okay. I'm amused by this. All right, so all right, it was in service between 1962 and 2012. So it was only recently decommissioned. Mm -hmm. Um, This was the first, the very first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, Mm -hmm. and it had eight what they call A2W reactors. Now the A2W, I was wondering what the heck that stood for, so Mm -hmm. I looked it up. Um, It's pretty simple actually. A is just aircraft carrier. Two stands for the second generation uh, designed by that that um, that particular. Um, designer, I guess, that contractor. Mm-hmm. And W stands for Westinghouse, and that was the uh, the contractor. So A2W, so that's the second generation Westinghouse aircraft carrier power source. Yeah. All right. And um, 
Used in okay, so of course it was used in uh, you know the first you know this is the first nuclear powered. I'm going to say nuclear, 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 nuclear. Yes, nu- yeah, not nuclear. Nuclear, I might say it, but you know, get ready for that. Um, but it actually it, it pro- um, provided power for four propulsion plants. So mm-hmm. each each propulsion plant had two reactors that that were tied to it, mm-hmm. and okay, according according to the way that it's all laid out, I guess they they each powered. Two different shafts. So let's say there's the the one A shaft, the one B shaft, the two A shaft, the two B shaft, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the way it worked, right? Mm-hmm. All right, and I'll, I'll try and try to walk through this carefully here, so we don't miss too much. I know it's going to be a simplified version, um, but each one of these was capable of uh, of running on just one reactor if it had to, but two were re- required for full power. So if they're going to steam ahead at uh, what is the top speed, like thirty knots, maybe, yeah, which 35? is about thir- which is about thirty four point five miles per hour, actually. The Navy has been very careful to never divulge the the specifics. There were some uh, sources I saw where they said it could move in excess of 40 knots, which is incredible speed. At that speed, you can water ski behind the aircraft carrier without skis. I you could like barefoot water ski behind it. I would like to try that. Yeah, that would be kind of exciting. Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, so you could run on one, you know, one reactor per shaft, but they said it was, re- you know, two were required for full power and, you know, for plane launching capability, which we'll talk about why that's important in a little while. Um, now, again, the simplified version of how these reactors work, if you if you want to get into it or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's they're actually fueled by enriched uranium two thirty five. Yep. And all this is uh, is foreign to me. I'm I'm like I'm speaking another language, so so <laughs> bear with me. But they use um, something called. Hafnium control rods in the okay. reactor, and that's yep. how, that's how they uh, control um, just how much steam they're creating. Sure, able to uh, to submerse or or pull them out to a level that uh, reaches what they call the criticality point. Yep, and I hope I'm saying that right. Yes, uh, but that's the point which uh, nuclear fission reactors reach a place where they're self-sustaining. Yes, they they create their own energy. Their yep. own. What's happening own is that when when one of those uh, atoms decays. It generates uh, some very high energy particles, which, when they collide with other atoms, cause them to decay. And then you get a self-sustaining reaction, which, by the way, if you aren't able to contain, becomes a meltdown. Sure. So so anytime we're talking nuclear power with fission, it's a very uh, scientific approach, a delicate balance to make sure that you have the balance between generating the heat you need so that you can create the steam you need to mm-hmm. turn a turbine mm-hmm. and preventing it from getting out of control. Ah, uh, yes. And that's part of, uh, you know, why they have these, these cool down towers and all mm-hmm. that, right? So they're, they're water cooled and that's where the steam is created. Yep. Because of the, the cooling water that they use for these things. So, uh, the steam or the, the, uh, and this is again, very, very simplified because there's a lot of processes that happen here, but the, the steam is sent to the main engine area. Um, you know, for the electrical generators, um, the air, aircraft catapult system, and lots of other um, auxiliary features that, that they'll talk that they mention here in this article. Mm-hmm. Um, so, runs just about every. Actually, it does run everything on board. So yeah. anything. I mean, you flip a light switch, that's being run by well steam power, but in, from a nuclear yeah, from a nuclear source, reactor. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So. The, the turbines, which are double-ended, are then caused to spin at a high rate of speed from, from the steam, 
And the main shaft, um, which which is uh, you know spinning with the turbine, you know at a very very high rate of speed, mm-hmm. it goes through a reduction gear, which kind of steps down the power to a point where they're able to use it even to propel the the ship because right. those propellers are giant. They're like twenty one feet across, and there's four of them. Right, uh, huge huge screws on these things, and uh, for them to even be able to use that power, there's so much power there. Mm-hmm. That they have to reduce the power in order to be able to propel the ship forward. Right. I could imagine, like, what's really important there, at least initially, is the torque. <laughs> yeah. So you gotta create, yeah. you gotta create the torque necessary to get those things moving. I would think it's important, yes. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Uh, so why go with nuclear power in the first place? Well, the big reason is that you don't need to refuel for many, many years. Yes, no range anxiety. That's what I was. I wrote that down here in this in yeah. this note when I when I wrote that self sustaining part. Mm-hmm. I wrote down no range anxiety. That's right. amazing. So they can go out and they can spend a year out at sea if they want to. Yeah, or two years or three years or whatever. And and you know they're able to. Now obviously food would be something that they would need supplies for. Water not so much because they have desalination plants. They can actually convert seawater into drinkable water. Incredible. But it does mean that they don't. Don't have to refuel uh, nearly as frequently. When they do refuel, that's a multi-year process because nuclear fuel is no joke. But it they it, they can go decades before needing to refuel. Is that amazing? It I, is, I, I, is amazing. I'm going to say that over and over again. You're going to be saying something. I'm just going to say that. that's incredible. <laughs> that's amazing. And and another thing that makes this really uh, interesting is not from the technological point of view, but from the political point of view, aircraft carriers are considered uh, sovereign territory. So as long as that sovereign territory does not venture too close to, say, a country's uh, borders within it, you know, that extend out from the, the, the coast out a certain number of miles into mm-hmm. the ocean, as long as the aircraft carrier is outside of that, it is technically a part of whatever nation uh, owns that aircraft carrier. So in the United States sense, you are on U.S. quote unquote soil while you're on an aircraft carrier, even if that aircraft carrier is parked way out in you know in in the middle east or in asia or wherever mm-hmm. you are still on us soil i but like that idea yeah so it, it really is like a floating city mm-hmm. you know it's the city itself can actually relocate uh so let's talk a little bit about some of the different parts of this uh, we we mentioned that the, the top deck is the flight deck yeah uh that is of course where all the planes take off and land uh in the old days we're talking propeller planes these days we're talking jets mm-hmm. Uh, the the design of aircraft carriers has had to change dramatically along with the evolution of aircraft. And we'll talk more about that when I get into the different classes of aircraft carriers. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned, Scott, was the, the steam-powered catapult. And you guys might be wondering, what is that? What, what do you mean by catapult? Is there like a medieval catapult that you put the plane in and it <laughs> launches it? Not quite. No, no. Well, the idea is that, you know, with with the advent of, of jet aircraft and yeah. the idea that you want to put them on a, on a boat and launch them. Yeah. That requires a lot of airflow over the surface of the of the wing. Yep. In order for it to get enough lift to be able to get off the ship. Right. right. And got it. And they have a they have a truncated uh, uh, takeoff strip, right? Because it's, they're limited by the length of the vessel and it's not even the full length of the vessel. No. It's, it's part of it. So. No, it's like 300 feet, basically. Yeah. So there are two things that aircraft carriers do to, uh, to improve the ability of jets to take off. One is they turn into the wind 
and they go as fast as they can into the wind, which generates more airflow. That is so smart. Right. You don't want to go away because then that reduces airflow. So mm-hmm. they turn into the wind and they go as fast as they can to generate airflow. And then they have to find a way to have these jets accelerate rapidly so that they can get to a speed where they can take off. And that's where this steam catapult comes in. Yeah. And it looks like a slot on the deck of the ship. Yeah. And that's all it looks like, really. And if you've, you know what? I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think this matches up with a lot of the way that they're launching some current roller coasters now. In oh, yeah, theme yeah, parks. yeah. You've seen this, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can't, uh, there's one in, um, Cedar Point in Michigan, or I mean, sorry, in Ohio. Yeah. And it's called Top Fuel Dragster, I think. And you sit on the uh, launch pad I, and it's going to. I've gonna... ridden this, this roller coaster. You have. Oh, yeah, no kidding. Twice. So, okay. So, <laughs> so it's the same idea. You yeah. can probably describe it. I mean, it's, it's, it's steam pressure that builds, and I don't know if it's steam in that case, but right. it builds up pressure pressure in the cylinder and you're holding it back you're 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 resisting that yeah you're allowing that pressure to continue to build there's a piston that's at the the, the end of the cylinder yeah. and behind that piston is where you're building up this incredible amount of pressure yes now keep in mind the steam is coming from the the nuclear power generator that's what that's what's creating the heat that's creating the steam so there's plenty of it there's no shortage of steam here and you just build and build the pressure until you've reached the right amount which by the way is determined by a flight controller, and it's based upon the type of aircraft that needs to launch and the current deck conditions. Again, very smart, because yeah. they, they found out that, you know, uh, certain planes require more force to be able to launch at a certain speed, mm-hmm. and if you don't do it hard enough, uh, it's going to go right off into the ocean, and that's bad news for everybody. Exactly. So the, the aircraft have what's called a tow bar, which connects into the shuttle. The shuttle is the element on the aircraft carrier that actually moves through the steam catapult that, mm-hmm. that accelerates at this incredible rate. The pistons, uh, there's actually a pair of them. Uh, so there's a cylinder on either side that connect to this, this shuttle. The tow bar hooks in, uh, and the tow, tow bar is connected to the nose of the aircraft. Yeah, the wheels up front. And there's also uh, something called a holdback, yes. which they fasten between the back of the wheel and the shuttle. Um, and the, the holdback is, uh, well, it's, it does just what it says it, it does. It holds I mean, back the jet because yeah. one of the other things you have to do Let's turn on those jet engines. Yeah, this is interesting because they, they do raise something, that a big platform behind it that mm-hmm. raises up behind the, the airplane. You can picture this. It's almost like a wall that stands up behind the plane. And what that does is it's a, it's just a jet blast deflector. In fact, yep. that's what they call it. And that just doesn't allow, you know, someone to get blown overboard, you know, behind them when, you know, you go full throttle on an F-18 or whatever. Right, exactly. Yeah, so so that, that launches up. And... Just before launch, I mean, they're you know they're checking everything. They're all they're getting all the signals for the go and everything, and the the pilot has to go full throttle while he's still attached to the shuttle via the uh, the tow bar, right? And the whole back is still in place, right? But he's going full throttle, and then they give the and then they finally give the. Uh, the go, I guess, for right. the shuttle to to launch, and that's what catapults the 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 aircraft off the end of the plane, yeah, or the, off the end of the deck. Yeah, essentially, you say release the 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 so that the pressure can push the pistons forward. That so the in a in a way the you know the the plane is being towed. That's why you call it the tow bar mm-hmm. by the shuttle at an incredible speed. Uh, when it gets to the end, it can then take off and fly off into the great blue yonder. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, if, if everything has gone well. And this was uh, the shuttle technology, again, was pioneered by the British. And you know what? Just to give you an idea of how strong this is, and uh-huh. we'll get back to the British in just a second, but this is a really strong system. And we were talking about steam, and you might think it's not all that, that forceful, but or maybe you do. I don't know. But <laughs> it, it takes a 45,000-pound plane from zero to 165 miles per hour 
in two seconds. Yeah, that's that's faster than a Tesla. Two seconds. Yeah, <laughs> that's considerably faster than that. It's not quite as fast as a top fuel dragster. <laughs> Which is pretty, by the way, it's a it's an intense roller coaster. <laughs> uh, two times I rode that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, um, I wasn't even thinking of that. I was thinking of the real deal. Yeah, the real yeah. The real car. Yeah. And I've heard, you know, I've talked to guys that drive those top fuel dragsters, the kind mm. that look like long rails, you know, the real, right. the 30 foot long ones or whatever the length is. They said it feels like you're sitting in a stoplight and a semi hits you from behind at about 200 miles an hour. That's wow. what it feels like when those things launch. So that's got to be exactly what the pilots feel when they launch off of a, a deck of an aircraft carrier. It's it's even more exhilarating than a, a standard, if you can call it that, a standard runway takeoff because they have so much greater distance and a, uh, a much greater amount of time to be mm-hmm. able to get up to speed. Right, right. Greater margin of error, yeah, too, yeah. I suppose. Uh, speaking of margin of error, something that uh, you have you have very low margin of error is landing on an aircraft carrier. Oh yeah, okay. That's another really interesting aspect of this whole thing is that you know, and, and it took them a couple of months to figure out initially. Remember, we, oh yeah, uh, we said they were thinking about it, but it's become even more complex with jets. Yeah. So uh, the idea of the the method that the main method that is used to stop aircraft to help aircraft come to a stop when they land on an aircraft carrier dates back to the propeller plane days mm-hmm. but it has become increasingly important in in the jet world as you were pointing out Scott uh and it's using a tail hook and a tail hook is just what it sounds like you have the tail of your aircraft there is a a hook that descends down that can hook on to something. In this case, we're talking about uh, arresting wires. Yeah. These are very thick cables that uh, stretch across the width of the the landing area of the flight deck. Mm-hmm. And your goal as a pilot is to hit a specific arresting cable. There, there, in older ships, there are a series of four. In more modern ones, there are only three. So with the older ships, you were told to hit the third one. Now, isn't this strange? Now, this is the first time that I'd ever heard this. When I was reading this article, this is the How Stuff Works article that we're yeah. looking at here. The goal is to hit the third wire in the set, and that's the safest, most effective wire to hit. Now, yeah. uh, the, I was thinking, well, why, why is it any worse than... Now, I can understand maybe not wanting to hit the first one because it's too close to the edge. Right. I get that. And the last one is kind of a, uh, you better hit it or else you're going over the edge. Right. Um, but why not the second or the third? I guess the third just shows some kind of precision. Yeah. Well, and and if you were able to consistently hit that third one, it would show that you were a, a particularly skilled pilot, mm-hmm. and thus you would rise up the ranks more quickly because you were showing that you had the precision, the skill, and the concern necessary to continue in this. If you were not consistently hitting it, you might not be flying that much longer. Yeah, I think that's what it's all about, though. I think yeah. it's I think it's all about you know just being able to have. Um, uh, Navy bragging rights. You can hit the third wire every single time. What do you think? Maybe, maybe. In the in the more uh, current ones, the more modern ones, where there's only three wires, you're supposed to hit the second one. Oh. So, again, you're aiming for the one, the, the middle one, not the one on either end. Uh, yeah, and so oh. what these wires do is they're actually connected to giant hydraulic systems. And so when the, the aircraft hooks one of the wires, it obviously starts to pull on that wire the hydraulics act as sort of a braking mechanism. Now, when you watch one of these aircraft land, it looks like it stops almost immediately. What's actually happening is that it's not just a taut wire that's attached to, like, anchored down to, to stationary points. Mm-hmm. 
Because that would very likely cause damage to the aircraft or to the aircraft carrier or both. And it could. The person inside. The person, yeah, the human beings. It's tough to stop immediately. Yeah. And there's lots of footage, tragic footage of aircraft that were unable to stop, uh, uh, including ones where they had not yet started using arresting wires. Yeah. And you see, uh, like there's, I saw one where it not only did it skid continuously, down the landing strip, it collided with aircraft that were further down the aircraft yeah. carrier. You're talking about prop planes. Yeah, yeah. super dangerous uh, uh, stuff. In fact, sure. um, there's a there's an article I read called Several Reasons Why Aircraft Carriers Are Super Dangerous by uh, Sam Legrone, who worked uh, in the Naval Institute. And uh, he talked about how uh, how how precise you had to be, how closely these things could uh, uh, come between, you know, success and failure. And it's pretty terrifying. It actually mentions that uh, that if you were flying some of the larger aircraft, like the Navy's E-2 Hawkeye, let's say that you don't hit that third cable and you don't hit the fourth cable. What you have to do then is you have to throttle up full speed so that you can fly up and then come back around and try again. Can I tell you something? I think that even if you hit that third wire or you hit the second wire or the first wire, I think you still go full throttle. Yeah. Um, which is, which is so weird because you would think that, okay, it's, it's snagged, it's, it's secure, but they don't know that yet. They don't yeah. know if it's going to skip over it, if it's going to, if it's got a, a tenuous grasp on it that, you know, it's right. going to let go. Um, so they're, they're trained that when that contact is made, even though you feel it grab, you still go full throttle just for a brief second. Yeah. Just in case because that's your last chance. Otherwise, if you're going over the edge slow, you better hit the ejector because that's your only way out. Yeah, because otherwise you're going in the drain. Yeah, and it always ends up upside down. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the, the standard procedure is that you need to take off again. It's called, you know, mm-hmm. you're, a, you have to be, a, you have to be a bolter. You have to bolt. A bolter. Yeah, they call them bolters where mm-hmm. you, you end up having to take back off again. Well, here's the thing. Depending on the size of the aircraft, you might not have a very large margin of error. For example, the Navy's E-2 Hawkeye, the width margin of error can be a foot. No way. 12 inches of whether, like, you have that 12 inches of space to throttle up before you are not going to be fast enough to get take off again. That's incredible. And and, I said it again. Yeah. 12 inches. Well, I mean, it is incredible. You think about the amazing... Uh, skill and, and courage it takes to to handle this kind of aircraft. Uh, another interesting thing is that there was a development that made this easier. Early aircraft, uh, imagine that you've got a like a two by four, mm-hmm. all right, and then you've got a ruler that's not as wide as your two by four, and you lay the ruler down, and the ruler represents the the landing strip on your aircraft carrier, and the the two by four itself is just barely longer than the ruler. Okay. Uh, and and so those were the early aircraft carriers, right? You had a, just kind of a straight strip that was where you would land and take off, and it would also be where you're, you would be mustering your aircraft, uh, which means that there were a lot of potential uh, places where you could have collisions if things did not go well. Yeah. The British came up with a brilliant way of getting around this. They decided to tilt the landing strip by... 14 degrees so that it was not a, you know, it didn't go the length of the ship. And by tilt, I don't mean that it was tilted on, uh, uh, like it wasn't like a canted 
not surface, not uphill or downhill or no. left right. No, it was just it was just instead of it being a straight road, imagine that you just turn that. So it's off the a few keel. Degrees. It's yeah. off the line of the keel. Exactly. Hmm. So that meant that you could you could have a mustering area for aircraft that was not directly in the path of where aircraft were landing. The British were the ones who came up with that. The British were the ones who came up with the arresting wires. And then the United States and other nations said, this is a really good idea that we are going to also employ. Very clever. Yeah. Yeah. Ways of making something that is, mm-hmm. no matter how you slice it, incredibly dangerous, less so. You know, there are some that even have a, uh, almost like a, I think they call it a ski jump at the end. Uh, it looks like a ram- it ramps up at the end so that uh, you get just that little bit more of a, a lift at the end, I suppose. Mm, yeah. Uh, puts you in the right direction. I would imagine so. Yeah. Yeah. And I've also seen ones like, you know, they had other methods of trying to uh, capture aircraft that might not have um, have hit the arresting wires just right, including things like giant nets that would help slow down aircraft, which sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. Yeah. It seems like that would bring its own problems. Yeah. To illustrate how dangerous this is, again, going back to that several reasons uh, article I mentioned, um, Legron quotes a, a, a statistic that really is. Eye-opening. Between 1948 and 1988, the number of U.S. sailors and Marines that died in and around aircraft carriers was 8,500. Wow. In 40 years, 8,500 people dying. Now, that includes that includes combat, but that actually makes a much smaller number than accidents. No kidding. Yeah. So, okay, I can I can mention a couple of accidents if you want me to talk sure, about them. Yeah. All right. So during the 1960s, there was kind of a, a bleak time for the U.S. Navy. Mm-hmm. They suffered three fires aboard aircraft carriers in the 1960s. And these you can what's interesting about this is you can go back and look at these. You can look at photographs because they were you know filmed in a lot of cases. Um, and they use these these disasters as training films for current military members on, mm. on aircraft. What? What not to do and what to do, because they got a little better at it here. But um, going back to, and I'll just list these kind of quickly, but uh, just off the coast of Vietnam in 1966, on October 26th, the USS Oriskany, um, CVA-34, if you're interested in that uh, designation, the hull designation, um, there were a couple of guys that were loading some flares into a locker below deck, mm-hmm. and one of the flares went off, and there were 650 other flares in the locker they were oh. loading. And the guy, I don't know if he panicked or what, but when the flare went off, he shut the door real quick. He didn't try to grab that one flare out. Mm. And uh, the result was a, um, I think it was like a huge fire that killed something like 44 men, 44 crew members mm-hmm. on board. So that was, ter- and there was extensive damage to the ship. Um, and then just a year later in July of 1967, again, off the coast of Vietnam, uh, the USS Forrestal. Oh, um, yes. This, this is one, a famous one. Yeah, this is. Now, this was an accidental rocket deployment mm-hmm. um, that slammed into a parked A-4 that was on the deck, and then that spread to other aircraft on the deck. And, you know, of course, bombs began to explode all over the place on top of that. You can imagine what's going on. This is this is a 13-hour fire that, crew, that, that killed 134 crew members. Mm-hmm. That was a huge fire. There were, there were 21 aircraft destroyed during this one. And this one is the one that I think they use as the, tr- the training film yeah. of what can go wrong. And then in 1969, uh, to kind of round out the uh, the decade with another disaster here, uh, the USS Enterprise, the, you know, the first uh, nuclear-powered um, carrier, had, a, had a, uh, a, a terrible fire as well. Um, similar to the uh, Forrestal fire, 
Um, but this was a, a rocket that ignited and hit another aircraft. And, you know, due to exhaust heat, I think is what set this one off. Mm-hmm. But it took four hours to extinguish that one. And tw- uh, 28 crew members were killed during that. And 15 aircraft were destroyed. So they had their fair share of, uh, of you know, hard knocks in 1960. Yeah. In the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, throughout the whole decade. And uh, I know that, you know, safety has improved over the over the decades. But there's probably still a lot of small things that happen on board, apparently. I mean, if sure. you ate thousand people yeah have died on these these are dangerous places to be I mean, yeah i mean well even if uh like there there can be things that have nothing to do with the the uh, flight deck or the hangar or the aircraft or any of the weaponry even uh, i mean you're just talking about a confined environment where you have several thousand people existing there there are plenty of opportunities for accidents that you know, you, they're the same sort of accidents that you could encounter in any other environment. So yeah. the figures that I mentioned, you know, not all of those were necessarily the result of some sort of catastrophic accident like the ones we've been talking about. But it does illustrate that this is an environment that that is by its very nature dangerous. Yeah. I mean, you could fall and bump your head. You could choke on something in the uh, in, in the, the mess hall. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly right. And I uh, mean, stuff like that. Or you'd fall overboard. A friend of mine uh, served in the Navy. He didn't serve aboard an aircraft carrier. But one of the one of the descriptions he gave me, uh, I, I imagine there were probably lots of uh, bumps and bruises whenever seas got particularly rough. Sure. Because he talked about how uh, if you're going above or below whatever deck you're on in a ship. We call them decks. They're not floors. So if you're on a deck and you need to go up or down, you you climb what is almost a ladder. The, the They are sets of stairs technically, but they are so steep that mm-hmm. it's practically a ladder. Yeah, because space is at a premium. Exactly. And if the seas are really, really rough, the the world around you is moving. And he talked about how, yeah, there were times where he would start to climb, and because of the way the ship would roll, he would end up being at the top of the stairs way faster than he had anticipated. Wow. Like, he would take a step, and then the ship would roll as he was stepping, and it's kind of like when you would jump on a trampoline just mm-hmm. right. Yeah, and feel a little bit weightless. Yeah, you you suddenly end up much higher up than you expected. <laughs> um yeah, it could be actually terrifying. I, I have I have one really cool story of an accident that was averted by someone who was in a different uh, accident that was that thankfully tragedy was also averted. This guy just had the best luck. Uh, Captain Jim Lovell. This if the name sounds familiar, it's probably because you've watched Apollo 13. Yeah, he was the commander of the Apollo 13 space mission. He also, in 1954, was flying a mission in a McDonnell F-2H Banshee night fighter. And Sounds like a cool jet. Yeah. Yeah, cool jet. But he had an issue in that um, there was an electrical failure on his plane. And all his instruments went dead. And it's at night. And he has to find the aircraft carrier. Oh, boy. By vision, like you have to find it. Like, you know, he didn't have any electric uh, electronics to tell him where anything was Mm because of the electrical failure. So he had to find the carrier, the USS Shangri-La. And the way he found it was he saw a luminescent trail from luminescent algae that was left in the wake of the carrier and Followed it to the carrier oh, that so that is, he could land successfully. That is so smart. <laughs> what that guy hasn't lived through, huh? or, or hadn't lived through yeah, at that point. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think we've really driven it home. But, yeah, dangerous location, right? Uh, one of the things that we haven't talked about yet, it's also on the flight deck, is the island. Yeah. Yeah, this is important. This is uh, where the... Uh, I guess all the radar capabilities and yep. the, uh, uh, the satellite. The, yeah. The, 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 um, the commanders are walking around up there, yep. um, telling people what to do. So this is, this is like the tower structure that you would see mm-hmm. on the top of an aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the command center and it, uh, mm-hmm. it's the command center for the flight deck as well as the general ship, right? And it has, uh, lots of different decks to it. As well, it is uh, about 150 feet tall. That's about 46 meters, but only about 20 feet wide or six meters wide at the base of the the island. Uh, that's also because you don't want to take up too much space on the flight deck. You want to have as much of that space available as possible. Sure. Uh, and this is where you have lots of different uh, decks that have important elements to it. So at the very top, you've got that array of uh, satellite dishes, radar dishes, that kind of stuff. Sure. Below that is the primary flight control, or PryFly. Yep. The Navy has lots of fun names for everything. Like, uh, like you know, when we mentioned about the arresting wires and landing in them? Yes. I watched a, a documentary where the guy said, yeah, they call that landing in the spaghetti. <laughs> when, you're, when you're landing in the cables, you're landing term. in the spaghetti. It's a good term. Makes sense, right? I mean, it, yeah. does, it really does. So, it, and below it just, that, It always makes me wonder if he's just... If, if they're just yanking our chains at that point, like, what can we tell them yeah, that maybe, we call yeah. this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're like, they're, watch, they're going to start using that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're going to call it. They're going to call it landing in the spaghetti. All right. So below the uh, the pry fly, yep. if, if that's what they call it, yeah. um, is the bridge, and that's the uh, the ship's command center. Yes, the bridge. Now this is where I am in my familiar element because I love ships. Mm-hmm. I love ships, and the bridge is that command center where the captain oversees the control of the ship. Uh, now, keep in mind that aircraft carriers typically are part of a larger group of ships. They don't, they aren't traveling on their own. They have escort ships. So that you have, generally speaking, several in your group. Uh, now, a captain only commands one ship. Mm-hmm. That is, the, the captain's responsibility is to that ship and that ship alone. So the captain is on the bridge uh, and uh, can... Uh, that's where you have your your helmsman who is controlling the steering of the 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 vehicle, the aircraft carrier. You have uh, another one, the lee helmsman, who controls the sends commands down to engineering for the speed. So you know, Mister Scott down in engineering can give it <laughs> give it or more powder, Captain. Sure, that was the worst Scottish accent I've ever tried. Um, you you have uh, also the quartermaster of the watch who is keeping track of the navigation information, uh, and. Uh, Below that, you have a, a deck where you have the flag bridge. That's mm-hmm. where the admiral is. Yep. Now, the admiral is in charge of all the vessels in that group, not just the aircraft carrier. So the captain commands the aircraft carrier. The admiral has the uh, the job of, of administering for the entire group of ships. Yeah. And then below the flag bridge is just uh, various operational centers. Yes. I mean, these are these are where they uh, they monitor the 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 deck control and launch operations and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, it's I, I love again some of the names like the aircraft handling officer, sometimes called the handler or mangler. <laughs> That's a big difference between the yeah. handler and the mangler, if you ask me. My my favorite description in this How Stuff Works article, which by the way is fantastic. I highly recommend if you're interested in this to go to How Stuff Works and look up how aircraft carriers work. Mm-hmm. My favorite 
description is how the aircraft handler, their job is to track which aircraft are on the flight deck, which ones are in the hangar, which ones are out, you know, have flown off. Um, and they do so using something called the Ouija board. Oh, yes. This is like a cool toy. Yeah. Yeah, this is really neat. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a transparent table that has outlines of the flight deck and the hangar deck and little cutouts that represent each aircraft, and they're to scale. So the bigger aircraft have bigger cutouts than the smaller aircraft. Well, they have to, otherwise they wouldn't know how many would fit and where they would exactly. fit. Exactly. It's all to scale, so they know exactly how to place everything and exactly where it fits. So, I, I like this. I like this. Uh, I like it when things are, are measured and, and organized like this. <laughs> I enjoy this. It, I like it, this procedure. It looks like it sounds to me like like it's 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 the super coolest version of risk. Yeah, it does. Because you know you're moving. All right, I get, I need to move these aircraft from my hangar to the flight deck, and then I I move these little models from this part of the etching to that part of the etching to represent that. And not only that, you look out the window and it happens. Yeah, in real life. Yeah, to a like, real plane on like, a real ship. This is it's the best again, the best game of risk ever, right? <laughs> Uh, then you also have the, the combat direction center. Obviously, that would be very important whenever yeah. the ship is actively involved in combat. You've got the galley deck. Uh, that's uh, immediately below the flight deck. You've got the hangar deck, which is lower down. That's where all the, the aircraft are. It's, it's actually several decks tall. It's yeah. called the hangar deck, but it's actually multiple decks tall because you have to accommodate those aircraft. By the way... Do yourself a favor and get on Google Images and look at a hangar, uh, hangar deck at yeah. some point. It's amazing. It really is. It's so cool the way they, they position all the planes. I mean, they're all put in there exactly in precisely the right way. And this is where they, they move them in and out on the elevators, you yep. know, the lift systems to get them up to the flight deck. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, it's a neat space. It's almost like, um, it's like several warehouses is what it looks like. Yeah linked together, and then they they store this just this incredible arsenal of planes in there. It's yeah, amazing. some of these can have like eighty or more aircraft aboard them. Yeah, how do you how do you figure out how to move around eighty aircraft without yeah. bumping into each other all the time? And they even have uh, uh, door doors that can close between different chambers. Obviously, that is a safety precaution. Let's say that the aircraft carrier has entered combat. Uh, you want to be able to shut de- close off one version one part of the hangar bay from the others if there were an enemy attack that that pierced part of it because you want to control the spread of fire sure so uh, you might be able to close one of those doors and save three quarters of your aircraft uh, in the case of catastrophe or you know even if it were just a an accident and not a, a an act of combat yeah. you would want that ability and then at the back end of that of the of the hangar area mm-hmm. is an open section at the at the very aft end of the ship the yep. very back end that they can open up a, a, a door yep and they can test jet engines off the back of the of the boat. How it's cool the would that be? Only safe place to do it because it's open to the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's just after the aircraft inter uh, intermediate maintenance division or AIMD shops. That's mm-hmm. where they would do the basic maintenance that would be needed to make sure the aircraft remain in you know flyable condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and again, all of this is necessary just for the basic function of the aircraft carrier as its purpose as a mi- uh, military vehicle. Then on top of that, you have all the mess halls, the galleys, the 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 sleeping arrangements, which are cozy at best. I would bet. So, Scott. Scott? Yeah. Okay, you're still here. Good. I'm still here. All right, good. Uh, turns out we had a lot more to say about aircraft carriers. Than, than what I might have originally anticipated. <laughs> and therefore, uh, we have decided to split the 
epic episode into two slightly less epic episodes. I think that's a good plan. Yeah, because honestly, you can't, you guys can't handle an hour and 40 minute long podcast. No, no, no. And looking at my notes here, there's a, there's a lot more to cover. I mean, we haven't even talked about the classes of ships. Yeah. Yet. So let's get the, we'll, we'll make the second episode the classy episode. <laughs> this is the classless episode. And the next one's the classy episode. Oh boy. Uh, guys, if you want to, if you really want to experience class, you need to go check out car stuff. Ah, oh, shucks. Classy podcast. Thank you. Especially with your classic cars. Uh, uh, you and Ben have covered some really cool topics in car stuff. as well. And you've got some amazing videos, too. So you guys got to check that out. If you've ever wanted to get an up-close look at exotic cars, you guys do a good job of getting a getting right up in there oh thank you you're too kind yeah so check that stuff out guys if you have any suggestions for me you have a request for a particular topic send me a message that email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on facebook twitter or tumblr the handle at all three is techstuff hsw we'll talk to you again really soon for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 